Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's in the interest of power for us to think that we are just selfish. Because if we do not trust each other, then we need them. Then we need the kings and the queens and the career politicians and the monarchs and the CEOs and the managers, etc., etc. Because we can't trust each other, right? Then we need powerful people to look over us. Hi, I'm Sarah Wilson and this is Wild, a podcast about living a more beautiful and fired-up life. Here we will continue my 10-year nomadic journey living out of one bag in search of more connection, more awakeness, less consuming, less loneliness and less bloody scrolling. I'll be inviting you to join me in finding better ways to radically love and save our one wild and precious life on this planet. My big mind in this episode is Mr. Rutger Bregman. I'm a historian, and my most recent book is called Humankind, A Hopeful History. Uh, Is that enough? (laughs) Have you read Humankind? It's a big, fat, very modern book that lights a fire under the idea that we humans are all a bunch of selfish buggers who will eat each other if left to our own devices on a desert island. I loved the book when I read it a few months back, It debunks some pretty lazy science from Charles Darwin onwards that we've taken for granted for centuries and serves as a clarion call to rise to a better version of ourselves. Rutger himself is like 12, well, actually 32, and he's been described as the Dutch wunderkind of new ideas. Several years ago, well ahead of the curve, he brought the idea of universal basic income into public consciousness an idea that's been supported by Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, somewhat ironically, and conservative economists and political commentators around the world, including Democrat Andrew Yang, who is running with it as a platform in the New York mayoral election this year. In his mid-20s, Rutger did a TED Talk, Poverty Isn't a Lack of Character, It's a Lack of Cash, that went viral and he wrote the bestseller Utopia for Realists. But this is how he hit my radar. In 2019, he was invited to the World Economic Forum in Davos and he basically told the entire conference of rich people who'd flown in on their private jets to talk about inequality that they were all kidding themselves. These people really believe they're doing good 
and they really believe it's fine to have a totally corrupt business model as long as you give enough to charity. Or, or maybe there's so much distance involved that they don't realize how corrupt their own business model is or what their own accountants and lawyers are doing. It prompted me to dig around to find out a bit more. The guy donates 30% of the sales of his books to independent journalism. And he internet famously exposed a Fox News host, Tucker Carlson, on air for taking dirty money from big oil billionaires, the Koch brothers, which is pretty wild. I spoke to Rutger in his home in the Netherlands. Rutger Bregman, welcome to my podcast from Utrecht in the Netherlands. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Um, I was actually in Utrecht many, many years ago. I was 18 and um, this was before the Euro. Um, so I was, uh, <laughs> I think, for a couple of guilder, is that the right currency? I Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hired a bike from the train station and each day um, I would ride off just in whatever direction I wanted to and I rode to Utrecht one day and um, I was 18, so, of course, when in Rome, I bought a joint and I would ride to wherever I was going, <laughs> smoke the joint, have some cheese and crackers and ride home. And uh, I was staying in a convent in the centre of Amsterdam. So it was quite a surreal experience. And to be honest, I could have done it for weeks, if not months. It was a very happy place for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds good. You know, Utrecht is a, is a beautiful city. And you should really come back, by the way, because it's much prettier now than it was 20 years ago. Oh, uh, that might have to wait for a while. Um, in the meantime, <laughs> in the meantime, we, we get to share ideas. Um, I want to start off by asking a question that I actually ask in my book. It's a form of a welcome, um, a Farsi version of how are you? And it's, how is your heart in this breath? Hmm. Well, what what can we say? You know, I'm obviously not one of the big victims yeah. of uh, I don't know this whole pandemic. Um, there's hope on the horizon, though, and um, it's also been fascinating to see. You know, the amount of solidarity. Um, you know, so many people. Um, all these small acts of kindness really you know, warms your heart. I've seen it here in my own neighborhood is that, you know, neighbors started talking to each other more than they used to do. Yeah. And uh, yeah, help each other for all kind of small things. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously, yeah, the, the political changes are pretty fascinating as well. And I've been waiting them for them for years to happen. So yeah, yeah it's, it's, a, it's a very double feeling. You've been waiting for them for years. That's an interesting way of putting What have you been waiting for? Well, I thought... One of the most interesting moments for me in this pandemic was at the beginning of April, um, the uh, newspaper, the Financial Times, which is basically the newspaper of the elite, you know, rich people around the world read it, rich businessmen and women and powerful politicians. Uh, if you want to know what the elite thinks, you got to read the Financial Times. And so at the beginning of April, the Financial Times published an editorial that basically said that we need to, quote, reverse the policy direction of the last 40 years and think about all kinds of things that just a couple of years ago were seen as totally crazy and unreasonable and unthinkable. So suddenly the newspaper was talking about implementing a basic income to eradicate poverty, talking about higher taxes on the rich, you know, mm -hmm. to stem the rising tide of inequality. Um, and a more ambitious or sort of activist role for the government in actually tackling the big challenges of our time, 
whether it's climate change or pandemics. And I, you know, it was hard to believe it. it was, I mean, this was not some kind of crazy communist <laughs> newspaper. It was the Financial Times was, was saying this. Yeah. So I think that was a real sign that things are definitely changing. Yeah. I, I see the similar signs. When you start to see economists um, talk about socialism might not be such a bad idea and things like that, and I quote a, a, an economist from the New York Times um, <laughs> who said that in about September. Uh-huh. So I, I follow the same trends. But, look, that's a slight digression, but it does lead me into sort of the point of of this podcast. And what I do here mm-hmm. is I take a wild idea and just the one wild idea and I present it back to you and we discuss it and we go deeper and mm-hmm. I ask you some beautiful questions and we stick to the one idea because I think that there's an overwhelming amount of ideas out there at the moment and they don't always get to be explored mm-hmm. as beautifully and mindfully and discerningly as as we like. So this wild idea actually came from your book, Humankind, which I could not read until I put out my book, in the middle of the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera, because it was, an, it was a book that I knew would confront me and challenge me in a bunch of ways. And I don't know if that's what you do as a writer. I have to shut down from books that could in, in any way contradict mm-hmm. or even back what I'm saying because I don't want to, you know, <laughs> I, mean, I think it's a writer's curse, isn't it? You've got to go into absolute shutdown. But the one idea that I um, that really s- struck me uh, when I did get round to reading your book only a few months ago is this idea that we are kinder than we think we are. And before we get too excited, there's also an attached idea that is we're not as smart as we think we are either. I'd love you to explain that and I might invite you to explain it via an anecdote from the book um, where you talk about the real Lord of the Flies. Yeah. So probably the best place to start is with an old and really, really influential theory in our culture, in Western culture. And scientists call it veneer theory. Now, the idea is that our civilization is supposedly only a thin layer, only a thin veneer. And that when something terrible happens, like a pandemic or an earthquake or a tsunami, that people suddenly reveal who they really are. That deep down, all of us are just selfish and nasty or even monsters. Now, that idea, it comes back again and again and again in our culture. You know, you can see it in our movies. You can see it in our literature. It was present among the ancient Greeks in Orthodox Christianity, in the Enlightenment philosophers of the 18th century. It's embedded at the heart of our capitalist system. You know, the idea that people are just selfish. So basically, from a very early age, we brainwash kids with the message, deep down, people are just selfish. Remember, people are just selfish. And indeed, one of the great examples here is this novel that so many kids around the globe were, well, almost forced to read in school, <laughs> right? Uh, with, yeah. Lord of the Flies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, um, you know, it's this, this classic novel by William Golding written in 1954 about what happens when kids shipwreck on an island, on an uninhabited island. And these are, you know, really nice kids went to a good boarding school. But the message of the novel is that when you give them the freedom to build their own society, then everything breaks down. So at the end of the book, a couple of the kids are, are already dead and they, you know, have turned into savages, basically. And uh, yeah, that's, that's a book that tens of millions of children around the globe 
have read in school, and it's the message, or it's at least the worldview that so many of our leaders have as well. So many of our politicians think that we live in a Lord of the Flies world, and therefore we need those in power to control the people, right? And as individuals, we've got to fend for ourselves. We've got to sort of do the dog-eat-dog mentality, and that's how we as children are sort of raised, you know, we've got to get ahead of each other. I mean, that's a phrase that Australians use, you know, with their children. I want my child to get ahead of everyone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And they call it realism. (laughs) Yeah. So it's seen as a a realistic way of looking at the world. Now, for my book, Humankind, I just wanted to ask a very, very simple question. Has it ever happened? So is there one case in all of world history where real kids shipwrecked on a real island and how did they behave? So I went on this journey that... Down the Googles. You know, <laughs> as, a, as a proper investigative journalist, obviously I started on Google. And I first stumbled upon this obscure blog where, where this story was told that supposedly it had happened near Tonga, um, you know, the island group in the Pacific Ocean, um, that six kids had survived there uh, in the 70s. Um for more than a year, and they had survived by staying friends. Um, so I, I couldn't believe it. I thought this story should be super famous. Why is there not a big Hollywood movie about it? I mean, if that really happened, there should be a, a big movie about it. Um, so I started looking for it, but I couldn't find it. It was only after a couple of weeks that, by purely by accident, that I was I was searching in some kind of newspaper archive, and by accident I was looking in the 60s, and it turned out that the original 1977 that was mentioned in the blog was actually a typo, so it actually happened in 1966. And here it was, the, you know, the headline in a newspaper, um, The Age, you know, from Australia, um, that said uh, that indeed six kids have been rescued from the island of Ata near Tonga, uh, where they had survived for 50 months. And had been, you know, found by the Australian captain, Peter Warner. So now I had a name and now I thought, you know, maybe they're still alive. Now, yeah. obviously, I, li- I lived on the other side of the globe in, in the Netherlands. So, <laughs> uh, but I was very lucky uh, because I was about to go on a book tour um, for my previous book, Utopia for Realists. So I said to my publisher, you know, can I have a couple of days off? Because I think I have uh, the most amazing story to, uh, to track down. What you found, though, was that far from being savages in the absence of rules and teachers and capitalist structures, these children were kind to each other. It was absolutely the opposite and it was a big part of why they survived for a year on this tiny little island. Yeah. In almost every single way, the real Lord of the Flies was the opposite of the fictional Lord of the Flies. So they worked in teams of two, two to tend to the garden, two to cook, two to be on the lookout for ships. Um, Sometimes they ended up in fights. I mean, that happens. Uh, Human, after all. Uh, But then what they did was one would go to one side of the island, the other would go to the other side of the island. They would cool off a little bit and then come back and say sorry. And that's how they kept going. Um, Yeah, it's it's really astonishing. And uh, it was, for me, incredibly heartwarming to discover that actually up until this day, they're still friends. So four of the six boys are are still alive. And one of the boys, well, I always call them the boys. Obviously, they're men now, 70 years old. That's right. Uh, but they call them, the, the, they call each other the, the boys as well. Um, but uh, yeah, the captain who found them is a wonderful man named Peter Warner. He's become uh, the best of friends with Mano, 
um, one of the boys he rescued, and they still go out sailing every now and then. It's a, it's an incredible thing to look at, this man of 19 years old and 17 years old. and There's a really soulmate. It's a really heartening story, and I got quite teary reading it because it's hmm. a... It's a recognition of a side of ourselves that we, we, we just don't see mirrored back to us often enough. And I think especially mm-hmm. in the last couple of years, we've been bereft of those kinds of stories. But I guess um, I'm really interested in the fact that it started around the agricultural, um, around about the time of the agricultural revolution, 10,000 mm-hmm. years ago or so. What mm-hmm. happened after sort of the agricultural revolution that saw us go in this other direction, actually deny our true nature and start to work to this idea of being selfish and so on? This is really one of the great questions of global history that you're asking now. So okay. <laughs> it's a really difficult and big question. Mm. You know, libraries full of books can be written about it. It's indeed this mystery of how is it possible that at first you have a species that for millennia was basically all about survival of the friendliest. I mean, for 95% of our history, we were nomadic hunter-gatherers. And in that period, it was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids and had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. And we can still see evidence for that in our own bodies. So we have the unique ability to blush, for example. I mean, no other animal in the whole animal kingdom does that apart from some parrots. Um, we involuntarily give away our feelings. And does blushing, yes, yeah, so blushing gives away, it's almost a gift, isn't it? It's almost a sign of trust mm-hmm. that I'm going to display that maybe yeah. I've done something wrong here. And while that can um, convey a weakness, it also conveys trust, which can keep the population going. Exactly. So individually it may be seen as a weakness, but collectively it's a superpower because it helps to establish trust between people. And if you ask the question, what makes human beings so special? It's not that we're very smart, really not. If you do an intelligence test and you let a human toddler compete with a pig or or a chimpanzee, then most of the time the animals win. Um, it's, it's really not that we're very intelligent. Except in one category. There's one category where a toddler, a human toddler will win out, right? And that's the social cooperation yeah. um, element of, of those kind of intelligence tests. Yeah, this is this is our superpower. Yeah, We're just really good at learning from each other. We are really good at copying each other. And it turns out that in the long run, that makes all the difference. You know, the best way to explain this is to imagine a, a planet with two tribes. So on the one hand, you have the geniuses. And they're really smart. You know, they're Einsteins. They come up with brilliant inventions all the time. But when they come up with something brilliant, they don't really share it because they don't have a lot of friends. Now, on the other hand, you have the copycats, and they're pretty stupid. You know, very rarely they come up with something interesting. But when they do, they share it with everyone, because they want to tell everyone, right? Yeah. Now, in the long run, the, the copycats will be much smarter than the geniuses, because they'll build this collective culture. You know, they'll build this collective brain, and they'll remember all the new inventions they have. The geniuses may be individually smarter, uh, but... In the long run, they won't be very smart. Now, this is the difference. Um, it's a little bit like the difference between the Neanderthals, who had bigger brains, who were, in a way, they were the geniuses, and Homo sapiens. We had smaller brains, but we're much more social. You know, we are part of bigger groups, and uh, um, yeah, we just love to connect with other people. So, if that tendency took us um, through several hundred thousand years of evolution um, and mm-hmm. took us to where we were, sort of as you know, ten thousand years ago. 
and then things shifted, right? So the capitalist mm-hmm. more, more, more model set in and power came into play and that, that really disrupted things, didn't it? Yes, yes. So for a long time, historians believe that in the past, you know, our lives were really, in the words of one philosopher, nasty, brutish and short, you know, and that war has always been with us. But what the recent anthropological and archaeological evidence shows is that actually war is a quite recent invention. And it all started around 10 to 15,000 years ago, the moment we became sedentary. So at first we were nomads, you know, we lived in these quite flexible, big networks and people met on average, you know, around a thousand people in a lifetime. But then people started to settle down. The reason they did that was, is that the climate changed. So, um, you know, especially in the Middle East, it just became too, too tempting to, not to settle down because there was so much food, there was so much game. It wasn't necessary to, to be a nomad anymore and to be in the run all the time. But then as became, people became sedentary, they started to collect property. And, you know, there's one philosopher, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who's often been dismissed as this, well, this crazy, romantic French guy. Well, that says enough that he's French, right? <laughs> uh, and, and already in, in the 18th century, he said that this was the moment that everything went wrong. Um, and for a long time, he was dismissed as this, you know, naive, crazy person. But uh, now it seems to be the case that most of the scientific evidence is pointing in his direction that indeed, this was the moment when people, um, when, when something switched between us. So I think we've always had the capacity for, for what they call tribalism, for this groupish instinct, you know, mm. thinking in us versus them terms. But now we entered an environment where um, this, uh, this really derailed. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In 2021, why are we still um, (laughs) believing that we are these selfish um, individual units and that we're not the kind um, sort of friendly creatures that we mm-hmm. inherently are. Why do we still believe this myth? Mm-hmm. I think there are a couple of reasons. The most important reason I would emphasize though is that it's in the interest of power for us to think that we are just selfish. Because if we do not trust each other, then we need them. Then we need the kings and the queens and the career politicians and the monarchs and the CEOs and the managers, et cetera, et cetera. If it is really true that people deep down are selfish, 
then we need hierarchy because we can't trust each other, right? Then we need powerful people to look over us. If it is actually true that most people deep down are, well, not angels, but pretty decent, then we can move to a much more democratic, egalitarian society. And therefore, I believe that if you, if you assume the good in other people, well, that's a revolutionary act. And it makes those at the top very nervous because they get worried about their position and their jobs. Could we then say that the, the fix, the, the way forward is to switch things around to a sort of a, a theory that says we're kinder than we are? The Pygmalion mm-hmm. effect, I think you refer yes. to it in your book, where we, yes. can, we can say if we spread a message saying we're kinder than we are, then that's what we become. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not only viruses that are contagious. Ideas and stories are contagious as well. And what we assume in other people is what we get out of them. Uh, Or to phrase it differently, stories are never just stories. Um, That we tend to become the stories that we tell ourselves. So if you, you know, for decades, if you tell kids the story of Lord of the Flies, then you shouldn't be surprised that when they grow up, they start behaving like Lord of the Flies children. Um, And that in a way they start behaving against their own cooperative nature. Um, That is, why it's so important, I think, to start telling different kinds of stories, not only in literature, but in filmmaking as well, and, and to spread the story of this new science. Because that is what I, th- I think is so exciting, is that in the past couple of decades, we've really seen this shift that not only anthropologists and archaeologists, but also sociologists and psychologists and even economists have moved to a more hopeful view of human nature. And if you take that view and then start designing your society around it, So to give an example, if you have a school, why not start with the assumption that kids are naturally creative and curious? Why why don't you take that as a starting assumption and then build everything around it? Will you still have, you know, this hierarchical system? Will you still have a curriculum? Will you still have homework? Will you still divide kids up in different classes and sort them by age or by academic level? Probably not. You would do things in a radically different way. Um, and that's just one example. Yeah. It probably, I mean, you can totally revolutionize your whole society once you change your view of human nature. Yeah. And look, I mean, you make your point throughout the book by using moments in history where essentially a crisis has occurred and it can mm-hmm. often bring us to that point where we'll make a switch to our inherent behavior, to kindness. Mm-hmm. So the question I have for you, the greatest existential crisis that we have ever faced We are in the middle of it. It is the massive elephant in the room. It's taken over the entire room, and that is, of course, the climate crisis. And Mm -hmm. I read your book through that lens and I absorbed all your theories and I was wondering how come this kind of thinking, Mm -hmm. this crisis thinking, hasn't exposed our kindness and our desire to do things differently, to break the more, more, me, Mm -hmm. me, me model? What's going on there, Rutger? Mm -hmm. Well, look, imagine you're a god and you have to design a problem for humanity that is like almost impossible to solve. I think that climate change would probably tick all the boxes, you know? It's it's very abstract for most people. We all contribute, you know, the seven, what is it, eight billion of us all contribute a little bit. The rich way more than the poor, by the way. But yeah, that makes it very difficult. Also, the timeline, it's just very slow, right? If... Uh, in, in a way, climate change is like a pandemic in slow motion. And if it happens very quickly, 
I mean, we've seen in the past couple of months how quickly governments can react. I mean, there are a lot of things happening right now that just five years ago would be unimaginable. The deficits that governments run, you know, the amount of money that is being invested by politicians who at first were only obsessed with, you know, the government debt, etc. It's it's all not relevant anymore. Um, so if climate change would work like that, then uh, then we'd see a very different response. I am still, you know, despite all of that, I still see reason for hope, though. Why is that? Because, again, if you would have told me, if you would have told me five years ago that by now um, we would have heard about this 16-year-old Swedish girl who kickstarted the biggest climate justice movement the world has ever seen, that under that pressure, for example, the European Union has launched, you know, the most ambitious climate policies you know, I've ever seen and, and, and that were seen as highly unrealistic and never going to happen only just five years ago, um, that we've seen this incredible progress in solar technology. For example, solar energy has become 90% cheaper just over the last 10 years. We're, we're also seeing breakthroughs in battery technology that are, you know, hopefully going to save the world. Um, there, are, there are lots of signs of so many people who maybe don't need... Uh, or maybe don't um, end up in the news every day, uh, but who are working really hard on a daily basis. I might pick you up on that, actually, because that's one of your arguments, is that, uh, in fact, there's a lot more kindness and generosity and progressive um, behaviour happening out there, but the news Mm -hmm. cycle doesn't pick up on it, doesn't report on it like it does the disasters and the calamities and the bad news. Yeah, well, we have to be very clear about that. The news is just really bad for you. People got to stop following the news. That's basically, it's as simple as that. The news is, you know, this barrage of exceptions, things that go wrong. It's mostly, you know, these sensational incidents. And and it's really bad for your mental health as well. And psychologists call it mean world syndrome, where you just start to see the world as a nastier place because you've seen too much of the news. It, help, it happens to a lot of older people. You know, older people are often totally addicted to following all, you know, the the daily newscast. And it makes them so much more cynical and depressed. I saw this with my own grandparents and it, you know, it broke my heart just to see them as they, as they got older, that they were just stuck in this apartment watching the news all day, all day, and, and it became more depressed day, on a daily basis. I guess there's a number of things that have been happening in the last oh, 12 months that have been particularly mm-hmm. difficult. And it has left many of us scratching our heads going, how did we come to this? And I think the climate crisis is certainly one of them. And and I agree there's behaviour that's starting to shift, but it is very slow. And the fact of the matter is we are not mobilising as a, as a global collective and we need to be. Mm. This needs to be mass and it needs to be fast. So do you think that some of the ideas that you explore in your book are around kindness, so if we were able to acknowledge that we are kinder than we are, do you think that could shift the dial and shift it damn fast? Hmm. Well, look, I don't explicitly focus on climate change, even though you could argue there's one whole chapter about the climate crisis in the book, which is the story of Easter Island. Yes. Now, the story of Easter Island has long been used by environmentalists as a cautionary tale. Here you have an island in the middle of the Pacific where people destroyed their natural environment and where in the end, you know, a war started and they became cannibals and they, well, they destroyed their whole civilization. And it is often 
use this story as a, well, as a warning message. Uh, they were alone in the Pacific. We are alone, you know, in, in, the, in the Milky Way here um, on this planet. We can't, we can't leave. We only have this, this place. So I used to believe that as well for a long time, you know. In an, in an earlier book, I had told the traditional story of Easter Island, which is a very cynical and pessimistic tale. But what's interesting is that we now have new research from a younger generation of anthropologists and archaeologists who've looked at the evidence once again. And they actually see something very different happening. Uh, the real story of Easter Island is much more a story of resilience where indeed people had an impact on their environment, but then they adapted. And then they came up with new technologies that actually make their own agricultural agriculture more productive. And this whole story of a civilization destroying itself, well, we now know that it's probably a very colonial perspective because indeed uh, Easter Island in the end um, was pretty much wrecked, but then by diseases brought by Western uh, colonialists and um, and by slave traders. So uh, the island itself was actually quite resilient up until the 18th century. Um, now, that's not necessarily a totally optimistic uh, story because in the end, colonialism still, uh, you know, destroyed it all. But it does show that people can be resilient and that even when the environmental challenges are are, are, are greater than ever, we can still adapt. So I think we should also look at that, uh, at the climate crisis in that way. It's not all or nothing, you know? Uh, a two degrees world is terrible. A three degrees world is, 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 is worse. And a four degrees world is, you know, we, should, we really, really don't want that. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's not all or nothing. Uh, I would emphasize it that way. And every, every small step, every small contribution helps. I, I want to bring up the fact that you've also um, probably risen into um, public consciousness with your appearance at Davos um, where you mm-hmm. call people into question, these environmentalists who'd flown there in private jets. I think that then snowballed into an appearance on a Fox News program where mm-hmm. you questioned the host on his own tax evasion and that led to, you know, a viral YouTube video and um and I, I caught all of this. I followed this uh, from here in Australia and I found it so wonderful that you were standing up and, and calling all of this out. And it struck me that that was truly wild. It's appropriately deviant behaviour. And <laughs> I'm wondering, I mean, I, I've chosen a wild idea, this idea that we're in fact way kinder than, than we've been told for, for eons. Do you get like a kick out of of finding these ideas that feel to be, that they go against the grain, but they feel more human. Mm-hmm. Is that something that motivates hmm. you? I mean, you're in your early 30s hmm. and you have researched this deeply, but is there a desire to be wild and is there a freedom that you experience once you realise these ideas are different to what you grew up with? <laughs> That's a great question. Look, I experience a very strong disconnect to my own with from my own background to the world that I, you know, entered. So you got to imagine that as a as an author with a with a bit of success internationally, you get all these offers, for example, to join the speaking circuit, which is one of the most poisonous environments there is. 
and and you can go on a speaking tour where for just one talk they pay you as much as my mother who's a special needs teacher earns in a year and the weird thing is that people can get used to that they just start doing it and at some point they forget that it's actually incredibly bizarre and unjust and that's also the weird thing about davos so I went there because I was just curious, right? They wanted me to talk about basic income because that had become really popular, especially among Silicon Valley elites. And so I went there, uh, just uh, wanted to explore a bit, talk to people. And what people often imagine is that if you go there, that you'll find the global elite engaging in some kind of conspiracy where they're, you know, scheming among themselves because they all, what they want is just to become richer and richer and richer. But it turns out it's pretty much the opposite. You find people who do not come across as selfish at all, but who are very friendly and warm and nice. And uh, yeah, you actually start to like them. So the truth is much more disturbing than that. These people really believe they're doing good. And they really believe it's fine to have a totally corrupt business model as long as you give enough to charity. Or, Or maybe there's so much distance involved that they don't realize how corrupt their own business model is or what their own accountants and lawyers are doing. Um, So the truth is much more disturbing, actually. If only it would be a conspiracy, then it would be easy, right? You just roll it up. You just track down the evil people and you you lock them up or something. But it's much more disturbing than that. Um, Power corrupts. So most people are pretty decent, but power corrupts. Power is this incredibly dangerous drug. that we should always be very wary of. And that's why shame is so important. That's why blushing is so important. If people can't be shamed anymore, then you get survival of the shameless. And we've seen that in our politics. Do you get enjoyment? Do you feel a certain amount of freedom from having, uh, from from doing those wild kind of things, holding no, a no. room full <laughs> of uh, philanthropists <laughs> and everybody to account? You know, maybe, maybe it looks courageous when you see it on a video, but you got to imagine that. When I was in Davos, um, it was just—it was mainly to ease my own conscience. Uh, I knew that there was a live stream and probably a couple of hundred people were watching. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to ignore the question of the moderator and give my own little speech. Uh, and then I'll have a good story to tell back home, you know, when I'll drink a beer with my colleagues. But I didn't expect it to go viral like that. Um, and, and the same was true with my uh, little row with Tucker Carlson. You know, you got to imagine this was in the middle of the night in Amsterdam. It was 2 a.m. here because of the time difference. And uh, he sounded so incredibly stupid. And everything <laughs> what he said was so disingenuous. So I thought the whole situation was hilarious and that they were never going to air it anyway. If I would have known that, I would probably would have been more nervous. Right. But I, I, at the moment, I just thought the whole situation was hilarious and no one was ever going to see it. Well, I think that you're, from what I've read and what I know of you, I think there's some wild stuff going on. I know that you give 30% of the proceeds from your book um, to the newspaper. The You know, you put it towards educational journalism, as you call it. Um, and when you do get to do a speaking gig, you put that astronomical fee also to educational journalism. I think that's pretty wild. Um, and you also, all throughout you, your book, admit where you've been wrong in previous work. Um, and and cheerfully so. And that is so refreshing. You have given us a very good insight into mm-hmm. how we can behave better. And I think that's the first step on a path to hope. What I want to ask, though, is that there's small things that we can do and there's large things that corporates can do. Mm-hmm. In an ideal world, how could we be kinder? How could we use mm-hmm. kindness 
demonstrations yeah, of yeah. kindness to, to create a better world. Okay. So I didn't want to write a self-help book because, I mean, I, I think that real change often starts with changing the structures, with, with engaging in politics and, you know, building different kinds of institutions. But then I couldn't resist. Because, I mean, there are personal implications. It does change your own life as well once you try to see the good in other people around you. And not just in your colleagues and your friends, but also in, you know, strangers, people who are far away from you. So my first and probably most important rule and most difficult rule for life is when in doubt, assume the best. We so often do the opposite. When we're in doubt, we assume the worst right? Especially when there's some distance in the communication, you know, someone sends a weird emoji of, uh, you know, some smiling shit on WhatsApp or something <laughs> like that. And you're like, how should I interpret that? <laughs> and then in doubt, we assume the worst. Uh, I think in doubt, we should always assume the best. In the first place, because statistically, we'll be right most of the time, because yep. most people are pretty decent. In the second place, because um, if someone's actually meant something nasty, then our positive response can create a positive, another response as well, right? Yep. Because our behavior is so contagious. And then in the third place, even though there are still professional con artists out there, we should just accept that we'll be conned and we'll be ripped off a couple of times in our life. Because what's the alternative? Do we really want to live our whole life distrusting most strangers and having to look over our shoulder all the time? No. No, that, that, that price is way too high. So if you've never been conned, you should really see a therapist because probably your basic attitude to life is not trusting enough. Yeah. And if you have been conned a couple of times, it's only a sign of a healthy look at other people. You know, it's just these people can, can only do their work because they swim in a sea of trust. You know, most people are relatively trusting. And that's why some professional psychopathic con artists can do their work, which is, I mean, which is, really terrible. But in a way, what do we want to do? You know, do we really want to distrust all other people and treat all other people all as psychopaths? No, obviously we don't want to do that. So it's the price that we have to pay. I like that logic. Um, at a structural level, what are some things that if it was an ideal world and you could wave a magic wand, what are some things you'd like to be to see happen? Mm -hmm. One of the most radical examples I stumbled upon during my research is what you can do in the criminal justice system. So. If you go to Norway, you find prisons that don't look like prisons at all. Um, here, the inmates get the freedom to socialize with the guards, to, you know, read as many books as they like, go to cinema, to make music. They've got their own music studio. They've got their own music label, which is called Criminal Records. <laughs> and at first you think, well, these Norwegians have gone nuts. They're crazy. But then you discover that scientists and criminologists from around the world go to Norway to study those prisons because they're actually the most effective prisons in the world. And why do we know that? Well, there's something called the recidivism rate, which is this chance that someone will commit another crime once he or she gets out of prison. And it turns out that Norway has the lowest recidivism rate in the world. So these prisons that don't look, smell, you know, that they, they really don't look like prisons, but they're actually the best prisons that we have. Yeah. They're very counterintuitive as well. So it takes real courage to build a criminal justice system like that. Because obviously when people are, you know, the victim of some horrible crime, it's only natural that you want vengeance. But somehow these Norwegians have managed to build this system and they're very proud of it. And they say, you know, we don't want to sink to the level 
of people who've done horrible things against each other. No, we actually want to heal society. And that's difficult, you know, it takes courage. As I said, it's a revolutionary undermining act in a way to assume the best in other people. It is. Uh, but the results can be amazing. Yep, I think I agree. It goes against all the stale, boring grains to instead, when in doubt, choose to assume the best of another. I mean, at the most fundamental level, what have you got to lose? Psychopaths and con artists will always exist and they will probably find a way to get to you, no matter whether you trust them or not. In the meantime, we might as well live kindly and openly and bravely and abundantly and accept we'll probably get cheated or hurt at some point. It's a small price to pay so that we can get on with living wild and true. Right? Also, I kind of think that cynicism really is a kind of lazy and dangerous way to live a life. It can provide a great excuse for not doing anything. This is something that really worries me in the climate movement, for instance, this attitude that it's all terrible, that governments won't change. So why bother firing up and doing what we can? You might as well sit here and self-destruct, playing Minecraft and eating home delivery from this stuffy bedroom. It's funny though, Rutger's wild idea kind of leaves me sad. Uh, sad for the humans we've forced each other to be all these years. The kindness hits we've missed out on. The smallness we've resorted to. It's kind of like the sadness I feel for my teenage self when I think of all the dumb torture and self-hate and crippling anxiety I subjected to myself too because I thought everyone knew more about life than I did. But I guess the best thing we can all do by ourselves, now we know this rational truth, that kindness pays out, is to start living it immediately. Like, as I'm still speaking to you right here, right now. It's a choice I have made in recent years. And, it, and it's definitely a choice. You do have to actively choose it because the dominant discourse is counter to it. I actually treat it as an experiment. I play with it. And the facts show there's no harm in trying it and seeing if it is in fact contagious and presents a better world. So far it has for me, so I've just kept going and going. I've also chosen to stop obsessing about other people's motives. In business relationships, on email chains, on, on dating apps. I mean, I'll never know, right? In fact, a cheat or a ghoster or a dodgy business contact probably doesn't know themselves. So why not choose to have fun just responding as you want to? Live the way you want to and see if you can switch the dynamic. In psychology circles, I think it's called complementarity. I mean, why wouldn't you? This is actually the phrase that I keep running through my head. Life is short, possibly becoming shorter, so why wouldn't you? And this is something Rutger puts in his appendix, which I found useful. He points out that we often dampen kind acts by rationalising them as almost selfish acts like, oh, I don't need the money anyway, or hey, it'll look good on my resume. But he advises we quit doing this and instead own the kindness, like really own it. So say it as it is. I wanted to be kind because it feels good to be kind. Kindness is contagious, as he says, so we actually have a responsibility to spread it. Life is short and precious. Why wouldn't you? 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.